On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, storing fresh potatoes, the Simplot way. With these two sheds and we're building another one at Mount Joy over the back of the hill from here, an additional one also at Wynyard. So that'll be an addition of 56,000 to 58,000 tonne of additional storage, um, which will allow us to store about 200,000 tonne of our 310,000 tonne crop. And a name famous in the Tasmanian potato industry, now growing salads and brassicas as well. Well, my husband still grows potatoes um, with, with my children. Um, I just wanted a change um, and I thought that growing potatoes was hard but um, actually growing brassicas and lettuces and spinach is actually twice as hard as growing potatoes. One of the Daly family having a go at something else other than spuds and part of the solution to the great frozen chip shortage with two huge new storage sheds opened by Simplot. That story coming up in just a moment. G'day, it's Honey Briscoe with you on this Monday Trust all is going well for you. This week might be the perfect week to get your bushfire plan in order wherever you are around the state, especially on the urban fringes. Fire Service Acting Head will be on the program later with a reminder about the latest bushfire season, which, as we know, is already underway with several recent outbreaks. Also today, three new directors for Australian Wool Innovation after the annual general meeting. We'll check the latest on the weather for the week and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438-922-936, that number, 0438-922-936. First up, do you remember the infamous chip shortage of 2022 when takeaway outlets had no fries and supermarket freezers lay bare for months? It was partly due to wet weather and unsuitable spuds for processing, but to mitigate crop losses after the harvest, Simplot have invested $41 million into two high-tech long-term storage sheds at Powerena and they're ready for the 2024 harvest. Les Murdoch is Director of Raw Procurement for Asia-Pacific for Simplot. He explained to Claire Burberry what the investment will do for the potato industry and for farmers. These two facilities at uh, Parana, there's two sheds here. Um, each shed is capable, uh, there's four compartments in each shed, and each compartment will hold about 4,500 tonne of potatoes. They are large sheds with high capability, so they have... Um, full temperature, humidity, CO2 control. So when we put potatoes in, we can control every aspect of the, of the storage as we need to. And what is the increase in capacity for you? Well, with these two sheds and the one, we're building another one at Mount Joy, over the back of the hill from here, and an additional one also at Wynyard. So that'll be an addition of 56,000 to 58,000 tonne of additional storage for us. Um, which will allow us to store about 200,000 tonne of our 310,000 tonne crop. And Les, where is this technology from? This technology is actually American potato storage technology. It's very typical of the designs they're now using in America, but it's also very typical of, of large-scale storages. There's obviously options of you know, smaller storages, which the Europeans are good at, but the Americans are better at, at, at large-scale, bigger um, stores and that's what we need. You know, the design was done by IVI out in America. They supply the fans and the control systems on the store and then local contractors have done all the work to put it together. So what is being pumped up through these vents in the ground to keep the potatoes fresh? So we're pumping air through. However, when we store potatoes, potatoes are actually 
are living organisms still, so they respire. So as they respire, they give off CO2. So when we put them into storage and we handle them and tumble them and whatever, it, it makes them respire more. So in the early stages of storage, they give off a lot of CO2. So we, we pump air, fresh air in to replace the CO2 they're giving off, but also that air has to be the right temperature. So the temperature is very critical in making sure that when we store we're not inducing sugar in the potato because sugar, when we fry it, cooks in a caramel colour. So we need to be really careful about how we control the temperature to make sure that we're not inducing the sugars. And what temperature is that? Uh, we, we mainly store about 9.5 to 10 degrees Celsius. Why were they built? They were built because we, we had to do something with our industry, with the potato business, to sure the future of the industry. And one of the things that, that we, we've experienced over the years is, is as we've pushed into this Midlands area and, and other non-traditional potato growing areas, these areas grow really good potatoes. However, when they need to be harvested, they need to be harvested because of you know a single rain event can cause water logging and then bogging and then we can't get them harvested. So growers have losses. So this is about shoring up an early harvest it's about making sure that when we, we do harvest, we've got the best quality in the potato we can. But with the early harvest, that's de-risking for growers. So, and that is really important. Like when you're investing twenty-one to twenty-two thousand dollars a hectare just to grow a crop of potatoes, you know, to lose hectares, it's a big loss. And it's not only the loss of what the grower suffers, but it's also the loss that we don't get those potatoes. So obviously, then our customers probably get in a situation where we can't supply. And what is the capital investment value from Simplot for these sheds, Les? Well, this is, um, this is a huge investment um, and it's, 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 it's one of the largest investments we've made in the, in the raw side of the business for a very long time. Um, so these two sheds here at Prana are around $41 million. And by the time we finish the, the, shed, the other shed at Mount Joy and Wynyard, we will have invested around $80 million. And will these new stores require a larger workforce in this area? Yes, they will, because, uh, you know, as we store quicker, we will be running more pilers and more equipment to get those potatoes in. So we'll actually probably, this coming season, double the workforce um, to make sure we give growers the opportunity to deliver as quick as they possibly can and get the potatoes out of the ground. Could you give us a bit of a run through about what will happen when harvesting begins the spuds are coming out of the ground they're loaded onto trucks there's obviously not going to be a bottleneck anymore to wait to see where those trucks go because they can come here in these sheds there'll be uh, an unloading conveyor outside which can take about three or four trucks at any one time uh, as the trucks unload they go onto a conveyor and they go up the middle of the shed onto a piler and they're piled into the shed um, to fill a shed to a depth of about five metres. And that can happen at any one time we can unload two trucks. So we can unload about 50 tonne in half an hour. Quite a quick process, but there's a lot of work that goes on before that. Like, you know, as the potatoes are growing, field staff are looking at the quality um, and before harvest we're assessing quality to, to decide whether they are suitable for storage or if they're not suitable for storage, they've got to be processed at the factory. It's not just about any potatoes can come in here. And it's not just Simplot that will benefit from these new facilities. Stephen Crease is a potato grower from the northeast of Tasmania. Here's what he had to say. Uh, I started growing potatoes about 35 years ago as a contract grower. Back in those days it was with uh, um, Edgels and McCain's. And then about 30 years ago I started in a farming partnership with Simplot Farming and I've been doing it like that since then. You're a quite a big potato grower up in the northeast of the state. Do you grow spuds anywhere else? 
Yeah, originally we started in the northeast, um, and then since then we've probably reduced that area a bit. We're growing now, so we're now also growing the Midlands and also Bothwell and the Derwent Valley. We're at the new Simplot storage facilities at Parana. What will these new sheds mean for you? The beauty of these sheds for us is their location, so obviously in the Midlands, which is a growing area for potatoes, and also now that we're growing in the Derwent Valley and that Bothwell region, it's actually well placed with the Midlands Highway to be able to um, put the potatoes somewhere. The biggest issue always for potato growing is always harvest and getting them out of the ground quickly and, and into storage. Before these new sheds were built, um, we were having to take them to Alveston. So it's all about truck turnaround for us. So the least amount of time trucks are on the road, the more potatoes we can harvest through the day. Do you own the trucks or is that subcontracted out to another business? Uh, No, we've got our own truck business, uh, Spud Trans. So we set that up about eight or nine years ago, basically just to service our own needs. Yeah, and one of the the main issues too with with the transport side of it is is availability of trucks because potato trailers are a specialist piece of equipment. It's actually quite hard to get contractors. Um, It's a lot of outlay for transport operators just to have specific equipment like that sitting around for half the year so we've had to invest in that to get our crop out. Tasmanian potato grower Stephen Crease, and we also heard from Les Murdoch, Simplot's Director of Raw Procurement for Asia Pacific, both chatting there to Claire Burberry at the brand new huge potato storage sheds at Powerena. Well, continuing with potatoes, and the daily name is synonymous with potatoes in Tasmania. The family is one of the biggest growers of spuds in the state. Now, Susan Daly has branched off into growing salads and vegetables and claims it's a harder thing to do than growing the potatoes. She spoke to Michael Condon at the Fresh Care Summit held at Warwick Farm. The big takeaway has been about social um, licensing. Costa spoke um, last night from Gardening Australia about how we should actually invite people to the farm and show them what we're actually doing as farmers, that there's that disconnect between people understanding what actually farmers are doing on the farm and how hard it is to actually produce vegetables 52 weeks of the year. Mm, that's right. And, and uh, with that, you've actually made a change away from potatoes to lettuce. And uh, tell us about that. Why did you make that change? Was it because it was, it was getting hard? Um, well, my husband still grows potatoes um, with with my children. Um, I just wanted a change, um, and I thought that growing potatoes was hard, but um, actually growing brassicas and lettuces and spinach is actually twice as hard as growing potatoes. Right, so you wanted a change, but it made it a lot harder. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, we've got an amazing crew out on the farm, and um, we're going to actually get... Um, the younger generation schools to come out to the farm um, because they're the people that we need to engage for the future to get um, back to eating um, vegetables to appreciate when they are grown adults um, when they pick up a bag of spinach um, where it's actually come from and um, to try and recover that disconnect. It doesn't sound like you have a lot of visitors to the farm now and you think that uh, you know it's something that could be taken on board quite easily and get people involved see what's happening see that you know it's not actually you know uh, it's a family-run business it's not sort of like a a production with a lot of fertilizer and a lot of uh, you know inputs like that uh, you know people don't realize maybe absolutely you know all farmers are trying to um, farm as um, uh, economically as we can and and reduce our inputs so 
as as a farm basically yeah want to try and introduce you know children to come back to the farm we actually had a group of children down at the potato farm um, we got some comments back from the mothers that a couple of them actually slept with their bag of potatoes <laughs> that night because, you know, we just want to... They just love the idea so much. Absolutely. Mm. So, you know, because um, they, don't, they don't always get to understand where their food is actually coming from and we want people to understand and to, to know. You know, I watched the girls crawling along behind the planter on their hands and knees um, and they do that all day every day and it's not easy work mm. so there's a lot goes into growing lettuce and spinach and you, at times we're up against um, you know the weather and when you're doing it 52 weeks of the year it's actually a tough gig. Mm. You found like, so moving into the lettuce or the, and then brassicas as well was it also um, more demands from the consumer uh, it, is that part of the problem as well? Yes, so, you know, we've got certain specifications that we have to um, adhere to, but unfortunately we're always um, up against the weather. You know, last year was a very, very wet year. This year we've had a very um, dry winter, so the farms actually performed really, really well. But you're just all the time looking at what's coming at you in the week ahead and you can't always you can't stop the rain Mm. so that's just how it is so this year has been better though and uh, for Uh, the potatoes and for the and for the lettuce as well absolutely um tasmania and especially where we farm um we've got surety of water our water is very good quality water our climate is actually um quite good in tasmania and that's one of our key um two successes and we're about to have an audit in um two weeks time so coming to this Fresh Care conference was um, very timely because we're actually going to, um, for the first time, um, be um, audited on our environmental side, um, which we strongly adhere to on the farm, um, the practice of... um, looking after our farm for the future. Yeah, and so sustainability, obviously a key accent for you and and generally for the farming community these days. It's something people really have an, you know, have an eye on. Absolutely. You know, we all want that farm to be there for future generations and... Um, it's just um, it just goes hand in hand of what we're actually doing. You mentioned there about the the kids and maybe they don't know. I mean that's that's one thing that you you notice now. Uh, certainly, uh, you know I remember that uh, I had relatives that had farms and we used to visit our relatives on farms. But people don't tend to have that direct connection to that anymore, do they? No, they don't. You know that the. They just go to the supermarket and and they get it off the shelf, but they've got no idea of the work that's gone in um, to you know cutting that lettuce, um, getting it to the factory, processing it, etc., etc. Mm. And what and what you've had to go to in, in terms of the climate, the rain, and whatever to get it to the quality to to get it at the supermarket as well. Yeah, absolutely, and understanding that you know on the farm. Um, you know, there's bugs there, there's frogs there, and and sometimes you know they that we've got to look after after the environment because that's where they actually live as well. Mm. And so, how we manage that and how we actually harvest. So you like to have them there, but you curse them at the same time. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. You know, I'm having problems with ducks at the moment. So um, the first thing I do when I get to the farm every morning is um, drive down to the waterhole and and beep the horn to make sure. Um, Get rid of the ducks. Fly away. (laughs) (laughs) 
Might be duck soup at your place. Yeah, <laughs> <in the future>. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, Susan Daly, uh, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour today. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Brassica and salad grower Susan Daly talking to Michael Condon about her new venture, Away From Potatoes, how the plan is to get schools to come to the farm to teach the kids where their food comes from. Also at the Fresh Care Summit, the global trends for the future came under the spotlight from the CSIRO scientist, Dr Alexandra Bratanova. The scientist spoke to Michael Condon about the Megatrends report and urged farmers to embrace new technologies like AI. The Megatrends report that I've been um, talking about today is looking at the nearest 20 years of changes. And the big change and the big trend that we see coming, or it's actually came already is associated with AI and other autonomous technologies and that's automation of transport, that's automation of um, agriculture sector, manufacturing and everywhere down to our everyday lives. So we arguably talking about this year as being um, the year of AI. We haven't seen anything uh, like ChatGPT before in terms of the adoption of uh, the technologies. So ChatGPT has got 100 million users in just two months since its public launch. So it took Instagram two years to get to this level. It took TikTok uh, nine months to get to this level. And so ChatGPT has been incredible. It's, 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 an, it's amazing technology, but the that it's just the tip of an iceberg of what's gonna, uh, what we are going to see in the next decade or even the next week. I mean, we're hearing a lot of people are, you know, scared of it. They're, they're worried about it. They're worried it's going to take people's jobs and those, those, those sorts of things. But you're saying people should think about it more as a tool. Yes, and something that is uh, or has the capability to uh, help us go through and, and manage and mitigate and get over the productivity slump that Australian economy along with the economies of many other developed countries is facing these days and it's been facing for the last five to ten years. So this is something that can really help us boost our productivity and get us more time to play, learn and to live our lives. The beauty of, yeah, the beauty of the technology, it's, uh, it's still in making, so we don't really know what it's going to uh, head to, and there's definitely a lot of scary parts of it, of it and scary um, like challenges that, is, uh, that are ahead of us. But the, the strength of the humanity and us as a species is that we are very agile. So we've been through the changes before. We've uh, adopted electricity. Been as scary as it. We've adopted cars. It's been as scary as this. So we will adopt, mitigate, and benefit from it. Yeah, and it seems that artificial intelligence. The the idea is you need to have you need to have a bit of a brains trust. You need to have you know use that uh, that human input, the individual input, the creativity. It, uh, it's just that the, the computer technology maybe can make some of that a bit faster and, may, makes, uh, and uh, assist in uh, the speed at which uh, some of those ideas can be developed. Yeah, so exactly. I'm, I totally agree with with your point. So it can actually help us do things that we do way better and very more efficiently. Think about health diagnostics. A person uh, behind the screen doing a scan of a person can actually... I recognize the, uh, a s- small amount 
of uh, of issues, like a large amount for an average person, but a small amount campaign com comparing to what computer can do. So if a, a doctor has been through like thousands of scanned images in his um, training, AI can go through millions of those images and can actually not replace the doctor, but can facilitate, help, improve, move the doctor to a new field where he doesn't have to go through the technical part of it, but he can actually make decisions and help people more effectively, better, and more cost-effectively as well. So lots of opportunities are there with AI in agricultural sector as well, drones for precision agriculture, for crops monitoring, for um, better efficient use of resources, including water. So it's all set to be used, and, but it's still way ahead of us. Scientist Dr Alexandra Bratanova talking there to Michael Condon at the Fresh Care Summit about farmers embracing new technology, including AI. Uh, David from the text line says, Hi, Tony. G'day, David. Just a reminder, Dillerane Ag and Pastoral Show coming up this weekend, 9 to 3. Lots of farming-style demonstrations, heavy horses, beef, dairy and sheep. Check out the Facebook page and event for more info on the Dillerane Ag and Pastoral Show. Facebook page, the way to go. We'll talk about the AGM of Australian wool innovation in just a moment. Nightlife with Philip Clark. Thinking more positively about where you're going is hugely important. I mean, it's clinically been demonstrated, isn't it? Interestingly, there's some links to suggest that our mindset and the way that we feel, everything is linked. So we see sometimes when people have negative affect over certain things, there's differences in their immune function in terms of they have higher levels of inflammation. Nightlife with Philip Clark, Monday to Thursday from 10 on the ABC Listen app from ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Got a story about the sale of the Akubra Hat Company coming up for you a little bit later in the program and also putting the solar panels into vineyards to protect the vines and to give you added power. Wool growers have voted in three new directors to the Board of Marketing and Research Company, Australian Wool Innovation. Emma Weston, CEO of AgriDigital, a leader in digital innovation based on a family farm in Warren in New South Wales, will join the board alongside George Millington. He's a director and owner of Collinsville Stud Merinos in South Australia. And WA Merino producer Neil Jackson is joining the board as well. The board will have to address some significant challenges which were outlined at the AGM in Sydney. Josh Becker has this report. Chairman of Australian Wool Innovation and Walcott Wool Grower, Jock Laurie, told farmers at the annual general meeting in Sydney it's a challenging outlook for the wool industry. It's been a very challenging year, I would say, in many areas. Uh, it all depends where you are in Australia. Most certainly in Western Australia there have been some uh, issues in regard to a range of um, a range of decisions, and that's uh, taken a lot of confidence out of the market in Western Australia. There's absolutely no doubt about that, and I think that's had a and has been uh, reflected right across Australia in many ways. It's uh, the, the dismantling, I suppose, of confidence in the industry over there. I think is the disappointing part. I know people are, uh, have a lot of options when it comes to uh, which agricultural enterprises they can and need to use within their business. Uh, and a lot of them are considering that at the moment, taking into consideration where the, the industry is, where the protein industry is, not just wool, where the protein industry is, and you know how they want that mix or how they want that balance of mix in their properties. Uh, a lot of people I've discussed are seriously thinking about 
the future and where they want to do and how much, for instance, how much will they want to go. So it's been a challenging time over there. Uh, on the eastern seaboard, there's many areas that have slipped into a, uh, a pretty strong uh, drought in many cases, and that's also challenging people in the industry. And, and the historic highs on the meat market to come back to where they uh, are at the moment has made it very difficult. The grain prices, when it comes to making decisions around feeding, have made it very difficult. Uh, and I think the industry um, has uh, is really starting to focus on on the value of what's happening. One of the things that we're getting um, on a regular basis is I think people that are involved in the wool industry and can see clearly the reduction in the EMI from where it is down and now at about 1150 Scotty or there somewhere abouts, um, compared to where some of the protein prices have gone, then wool's really showing its real value at the moment uh, and how it can be a sort of balancing factor in a lot of enterprises. So in some ways it's, it's, uh, it's very good for us, but in other ways, the other component of the industry, I think, is really being tested. AWI CEO John Roberts highlighted wool production is in decline in WA and cost of living pressures are even biting for European consumers in the luxury market. The revenue for the company is in decline, which is a reflection of the broader wool market, but it's 64% of what AWI earned four years ago. The levy-funded organisation has drawn on $17 million from the company reserves to fill the gap, funding shearer training and additional marketing for the eco-credentials of Australian wool. That said, production has risen in f 223 and we're on track to exceed 345 million kilos. The Australian Wool Forecasting Committee uh, doesn't expect that, that, that uh, growth to continue or the flo- in the flock size or the wool clip, and we, we, we think there'll be a moderate correction next year on the back of challenging conditions, particularly in the broader wool and meat sheep sector. If we move down to production by state, percentages have not shifted a great deal. You can see that New South Wales is still the largest production state. But interestingly now, Victoria is the second um, largest production state ahead of uh, Western Australia. We expect that um, Western Australian percentages are going to come under some more pressure in the coming years as the impact of the pending live export ban and ongoing shearing challenges continue to confront those, those, those wool growers. In terms of wool price, you can see here that um, prices um, have struggled over the last 16 months. You're all aware of it, you're all feeling it. Um, we enjoyed a reasonably uh, unexpected uh, celebration period in Europe and the US straight after COVID. And that was, that was a nice rally. Um, we saw the same thing as China came out of COVID, another, another what we called a celebration period earlier in the year. But sadly, they were, were short-lived and, um, we, and we're now seeing ourselves flatlining while we wait for some sort of sign of positivity coming at, at a retail level, which we think is a fair way off at the moment. Whilst the luxury sector you know, consumer is usually more immune to some of the economic downturn, it seems that the current cost of living uh, and general concerns about macroeconomic situations, geopolitical tensions are really starting to even impact that, that, that sector at the moment and they're being much more cautious about their expenditure. WA-based Steve Maguire and New South Wales-based Edward Storey, the former head of Wool Producers Australia, were both unsuccessful in their campaign for a spot on the board. That's Josh Becker with that report on the latest Australian Wool Innovation Annual General Meeting and Talking Wool Prices. Uh, the latest auctions, finer wool performed well. 17 microns were up 51 cents. 18s jumped 38 cents. 19s, 37 cents dearer. 20 micron also in demand, up 25 cents. And 21s moved 26 cents. Crossbed and carding wools didn't attract the same level of interest. Around 43,000 bales set to go under the hammer this week. 
Still to come on the Country Hour, some timely advice in the new bushfire season, a trial of solar panels in vineyards, and we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Liz Gwynn. Good afternoon, Tony. Another 31 Australian citizens and their family members have left Gaza by crossing into Egypt. The Department of Foreign Affairs has confirmed the group made up of citizens, permanent residents and family members got out early this morning. There are more than 130 Australian citizens and their relatives that remain in Gaza and have asked for help to leave. Kelly Bayer Rosmarin has resigned as Optus CEO. Her departure follows the network outage on November 8, which left 10 million customers without access to phone and internet services. And the Australian Transport Safety Bureau says it's believed a crew was filming promotional material before two planes collided mid-air over Port Phillip Bay, south of Melbourne. A second day of searching is underway for two people missing after the former military planes collided, causing one of the planes to plunge into into water, the other jet landed at Essendon Airfields. Some wreckage has been found. More news soon. Let's check the latest on the weather now. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. Good day, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. Plenty of people out walking today. What a day for a walk. Beautiful. And it's going to be like this for most of the week. We're actually sitting in between two slow-moving high-pressure systems, one well to the west of Tasmania and one to the east over the Tasman Sea, and that's going to bring warm and mostly settled weather this week. So for today, we do have isolated showers developing during the day, but mostly inland and fine elsewhere with light winds and afternoon sea breezes. Tomorrow, light showers about the west clearing in the early afternoon and isolated showers developing about eastern and central areas in the middle of the day, but fine otherwise. Then on Wednesday, some isolated showers in the north, but fine elsewhere apart from light morning showers about the southwest and mainly fine on Thursday and Friday. Maximum temperatures will generally be above average this week with the warmest temperatures likely inland. For a couple of the main centres, Hobart will see maximum temperatures in the low 20s with Launceston reaching the mid-20s. Any rainfall of any note anywhere, Brooke? In the 24 hours to 9am this morning, there was a little bit of rain about the west and the south of the state with the highest totals being... Four millimetres at Kimberley, three millimetres at Lake Margaret and two millimetres at Grindstone. Since 9am this morning, the only significant rainfall has been two millimetres at Friendly Beaches. And not much on the horizon for the next week, eh? That's right. The next time we'll start to see showers increasing and some slightly higher rainfall totals is likely on Sunday as we see a moist easterly airstream develop over Tasmania. But that's several days away, so we'll have to wait until we get a bit closer for any degree of certainty. And I'm guessing no warnings? No, no warnings for today or tomorrow. And if we look at the winds out on the coastal waters, today we have southwest to southeasterly winds at 5 to 15 knots, tending southeast to northeasterly during the evening. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of 2 to 3 metres, and the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 2.6 metres. In the north, a westerly below 1 metre, and in the east, a southerly of 0.5 to 1.5 metres, although southwesterly 1.5 to 2.5 metres offshore in the south, also a northeasterly below 1 metre. 
Tomorrow, west to southwesterly winds at 10 to 15 knots in the west and south, increasing to 15 to 25 knots during the morning. Variable winds 5 to 15 knots in the northeast. The swells in the west and south remain southwesterly at 2 to 3 metres. In the north, confused below one metre, and in the east, a southerly around one metre, although southwesterly one and a half to two and a half metres offshore in the south, and still a northeasterly below one metre. Terrific. Thank you, Brooke. Thanks, Tony. See you later, Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the weather. Good looking week coming up. Not too good if you want some rainfall, but anyway, we'll see what happens. Uh, coming up, we'll talk the fire season in just a moment. Jeremy Smith from the TAS Fire Service. G'day, it's Leon Compton from The Morning Show on ABC Radio Hobart. For some of our fellow Tasmanians, sharing the joy of Christmas is becoming increasingly hard, with people having to choose between paying bills and doing something special with family or friends. That's what the ABC Giving Tree is all about, raising money to share with Tasmanians doing it tough. Help give joy to Tasmanian families this Christmas. Donate online now to the ABC Giving Tree appeal. abc.net.au slash givingtree. On air, online, on digital and the ABC Listener. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Farmers and landholders in the state have been urged to be ready for the new bushfire season with a plan of action. Jeremy Smith from the Tasmanian Fire Service says the recent bushfires in the state have shown how serious things are. It says people who live in suburbs near bushlands also need a plan. The plan is an important part of keeping their family safe. What's important to individuals, what's important to the family needs to be thought about and planned for. The recent events at Coles Bay, uh, Dolphin Sands, Flinders Island, it isn't actually in the, uh, the summer bushfire uh, intensity of the summer um, and these events have impacted on communities and individuals and again we just want to reinforce that having a plan is the best way of keeping your, your family and your valuables and your community safe. So really want to reinforce the value of taking the time out of your obviously busy schedules and have a plan, sit down with your family, look through uh, the publications that are available on the TFS website and develop your plan, communicate your plan and have a backup plan as well because the things that happen during uh, events like a bushfire impacting on communities, it's not a planned event. It's going to impact you in different ways so you need to think about what you do. If a fire breaks out, you know, where are you going to get your information from? What valuables are you going to take? Who are you going to inform? Where are you going to go? Those type of things. Probably time when it's impacting you and the family, if you've thought about it, you're going to make some good decisions. You're going to make decisions that save your life. Whether it's TAS alerts, whether it's the radio, whether it's family or friends, are you going to call someone to make sure that they're all right as well? So varying the uh, sources, it's important. Get the right information and make good decisions and make those decisions before the event. If you live near or in the bush, you should have a plan. At any time during the year now, we could have a fire that breaks out and impact on you and the community. Part of your preparation is having an understanding where you will go. Where you, will you go to a family member's place? Where you go to a uh, evacuation centre? Whether you go into town and just be out of the bush for the day? Just somewhere safe where you and your family can go. Certainly the last two or three seasons have been fairly benign, however, um, with climate change, with um, uh, the countryside drying out, certainly uh, fires can impact anywhere within the state. So we've had uh, a number of exercises, a number of training activities, a number of uh, 
major events that have actually impacted on TFS and one of those is the new uh, radio network. Certainly our crews can uh, uh, communicate a lot easier than before. We can communicate with our partners a lot easier and getting the right information to the right people at the right time is so important. Get your plan out if you've uh, had one previously, make sure everyone knows about it. Or if you haven't got a plan, get the materials from our TFS website and sit down as a family or as a community and work it through. Jeremy Smith, the Acting Chief Officer of the Tasmanian Fire Service, launching advice for the upcoming bushfire season in the state. Snakes. Leon Compton. What we're learning is that snakes, they like to climb walls, up trees and on roofs. Sam. Sometimes they get a little mixed up and I'm a little nervous to be on radio. Oh, my God. Tell you what, <laughs> you worry about the snakes. I'll worry about being gentle in this interview. We're both going to get through this fight. Are you saying you'd rather confront an angry tiger snake than do this phone call right now, Sam? <laughs> yes, well, I'd rather deal with a snake any day than talk well, on the radio. Mornings with Leon Compton. Sam will make this nice and easy. From 8.30 weekdays on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, the National Farmers Federation is wary of the federal government's consultation on the emissions for the agriculture sector. Earlier this month, consultation opened on how the agriculture and land sectors can play a part in the Albanese government's economy-wide Net Zero 2050 plan. Tony Maher from the NFF is wary of the government's plans but says agriculture does have a role to play. One is recognition of the importance of agriculture. We've seen in recent years policies being implemented and it looks and feels like they haven't recognised agriculture, they haven't taken into account you know, farming and, and the communities in which they live. So we want um, recognition and, and acknowledgement of the importance. Uh, and secondly, I think that uh, we, we need to make sure that we balance the needs of agriculture uh, against those you know, environmental policies um, against the need to feed and clothe people. You know, we, we actually need to keep producing food and fibre for Australians but also the world and we can continue to do that in a sustainable way. So um, no restrictions, you know, more recognition um, and more technology to allow agriculture to to continue to adapt. We've done that, we've shown we can do that. So more support to adapt and, you know, be part of the solution. Do you think that's what government wants to hear? I'm not sure. I think they're interested in solutions. Um, I think they've got a bit of an agenda. Our job as representatives of the ag sector is to make sure that they hear that and, and it's not just nodding, but they actually implement and they you know, make these policies reflect what the industry wants. Tony Ma from the National Farmers Federation talking there to Warwick Long about the federal government's consultation on the emissions for the agriculture sector. It's common these days for wineries to use solar power, but South Australian researchers are trying to find ways of incorporating solar panels into the vineyards themselves, not just to cut costs, but also to protect the vines in increasingly harsh climates. The hope is that vitivoltaics could protect vines and cut water use while also generating cheap power without the need for extra land. Adelaide University Associate Professor Cassandra Collins says the study will test the technology's potential benefits and impacts on grape and wine quality. A lot of solar panel systems are separate from an agricultural enterprise, but with vitivoltaics, we're actually bringing the vineyard and the solar panels together and hopefully gaining some mutual benefit from having them together. 
So what are some of those potential mutual benefit benefits, but particularly from a viticulture perspective for, for the vines themselves? So what we want to have a look at, and we've got a pilot study set up at the um, Wake campus of the University of Adelaide, is to look at whether those solar panels can actually protect the vines during periods of high heat load, um, potentially even things like wind and frost and, and other elements that the vines are exposed to. So solar panels may be a way to actually offer them a little bit of protection from those adverse weather conditions that may lead to a better quality outcome from the fruit that we're harvesting from those vines. So what are some of the answers you're hoping to gather from the research that you're doing on the impact of the vines, whether there's what any potential negative impacts, positive impacts, yes. whether that flows through to the, the quality of the grapes themselves? Yeah, exactly. So um, with this, there could be some detrimental effects or obviously shading at, at different parts of the the day and during the season. So we need to see if there's any carryover effects from that. So grapevines, as well as many other um, crops, are very reliant on light levels and so shade can can be an issue. But at the same time, we have quite extreme um, heat load during the summer months and the way that these solar panels potentially could work is that we can buffer some of that and that could lead to better colour development, more positive flavour and aroma attributes in the fruit. These are some of the things that, that we'll be looking at with the team here at the University of Adelaide. We're quite excited about how we're going to look at that, but it's a very, very complex topic and what we've done with this particular recent funding is bring together a team across the university with wide-ranging um, expertise. So obviously we have our viticulture um, and enology team looking at the quality aspects and, and some of the logistics of actually having these two things combined in a vineyard, but also working with our business team and wine marketing teams as well as architecture and engineering and um, even experts in artificial intelligence. So we're trying to bring as many of those elements together to really look at this complex project and, and get the most benefit out of it. Because I understand while this isn't a, really an Australian first looking at this, it is done in other parts of the world? Yeah, so in the background, we're also talking to some of our collaborators overseas. So there's quite um, a significant setup in Germany already and um, in France, in places like Bordeaux, they're also starting to, to look at this. One of the benefits of doing this here in Australia is that we do already have those extreme weather events um, that we can really test this and see what benefits might arise. That's Associate Professor Cassandra Collins from the University of Adelaide School of Ag, Food and Wine. One of her colleagues involved in the research is Associate Professor Armando Corsi, who is from the university's business school. I asked him how he was bringing his wine business background to this research. Me and my team, uh, with Dr. Rebecca Dolan and Alison Joubert, we're really focusing more on the marketing and consumer acceptance aspect of um, these vitivoltaic systems because this is not only is useful uh, from an energy saving perspective, the fact that we have the panels really on, on the field, but they can also improve possibly the perceptions that consumers uh, might have about um, the wineries adopting uh, those systems. So 
um, we were really interested in understanding whether the possibility of consumers to see the systems in action, to have a storytelling about the, uh, why uh, companies have adopted uh, this system, uh, it's something that can also possibly translate in consumers improving their perception of those wineries, um, possibly be willing to buy more wines, and possibly even buy them at higher price points. Now, of course, we don't want it to be a greenwashing exercise. So, mm -hmm. of course, we don't want it just to sit there to kind of look and feel good, but we want to understand if the wineries that adopt this system, because they, of course, truly believe in the value of the system, actually they can also get some additional benefits, not just in terms of uh, having a saving in electricity bill, but also in terms of the overall perception that consumers will have for the wineries. Because I know that this is certainly a growing thing that consumers uh, in greater numbers want to know about the provenance of their wine, how it's made, how environmentally friendly and sustainable it is. But as you say, greenwashing is something that uh, consumers are also quite on to as well. So um, th this is something that you're looking into as to how you know wineries might use this uh, as a marketing thing really um, for consumers looking for that kind of environmentally sustainable and more friendly wine? Uh, absolutely, yes. We Marketing is a lever, but I think there is more and more the idea of, I guess, understanding the marketing that is done for a purpose, not marketing that is done really for tricking people into a story that maybe is not there. Because I guess also more and more companies that will adopt a more greenwashing type of approach, whether we are in the wine business or really in any other uh, sector, will be discovered in no time with the access that we have to information uh, overall. But at the same time, I think it's important that if a winery, in our case, adopt a system that actually improves the overall level of sustainability of the company, that also they're not shying away from this. Because sometimes I think we have a bit of a tendency of maybe just do things because they're the right things to do, but don't tell people that were doing the good things. And so this is about now understanding and, and, and showing to people that if you're doing something good, we're not just doing it because it's the right thing to do, and we can all agree on that, but also to use that doing thing for actually getting some benefits, as I said, in terms of the overall perception that people have of the one that is adopting this system. Associate Professor Amanda Corsi from University of Adelaide speaking with Selena Green about the use of solar panels around the vineyard. We also heard from Associate Professor Cassandra Collins. Well, iconic Australian hat maker Akubra has announced the business has been sold to Tatarang, which is owned by mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest. Akubra has been run by the Keir family for the last 147 years. As Tina Quinn reports... It's an Australian fashion staple, famously donned by celebrities and prime ministers, and the new owners of Akubra hats, which have been handmade in Australia for almost 150 years, intend to keep it that way. Australia is the winner out of this. Australia keeps a legacy at home with an organisation who's so proud to be Australian, who's so proud of our nation, our history, everything which our diggers have fought for, the fact these hats are worn all over the world by our diggers, by Australians everywhere. If you want to be seen to be proudly Australian, then in an Akrobra is the way to do it. Mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest over the weekend announcing their private investment firm Tatarang had acquired a Kubra from the Kia family after 147 years of ownership. 
The Akubra business started in Hobart in 1876, and the hats have been manufactured in Kempsey on the New South Wales mid-north coast since 1972. Over the last 50 years since its Kempsey workshop first opened, they've become a major employer for the region, with more than 120 staff. Akubra's outgoing chair, Stephen Keir, said the decision to sell was a difficult one, but cited the COVID-19 pandemic as one of the main drivers. Um, the first six months of the pandemic were really, really tough. Uh, then it took off, and that's where we've been stuck. We've had it to a point and we can't get it further. And um, that's where we made the decision to look at our, where we can go, how we do it, and the world's out there. Most of our sales are in Australia, so Tatarang will take that further and do that. My sisters and I have talked for a long time about um, where we can get this business to and we've, we've done a pretty good job to get it where it is now and our forefathers have done a good job to where it is. But it needs more and um, we were just worried that we weren't going to be able to give it what it needs and um, Tattering and the forests have proven um, what they've done with Aaron Williams. Um, we've dealt with Aaron Williams for, for a long time and um, it's just... The brand, we, we took ourselves out of the picture and thought, what does the brand need and what does the company need? And um, this is a decision we came to. And um, Mr Forrest has talked to me over the years. Andrew Digger. Andrew's <laughs> talked to me over the years. And um, he, his passion for manufacturing here is what a place like this needs. Terence Hunt, a former Akubra employee of 53 years, told the ABC's Samantha Aisha that he has many fond memories from his time at the company. I started in 1961. I retired as the company secretary in 1995 and retired as a director in 2014. So what would you say would be the most rewarding time since your time at Akubra? There have been a couple of really good times. 1998 with the... Um, uh, centenary and the uh, Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, a dramatic increase in demand and we rose to the challenge, dropped off then since, but since then it's picked up and with the last one I was involved was selling into 23 countries, bit, 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 bit large for a small Australian company. So how do you feel with the new ownership? Well, I was saying to somebody else, Charles Darwin never said the survival of the fittest. He said it was the survival of those who adapt fastest. And this generation has adapted to the situation they're in now. There's certainly Mr. Forrest coming in with his assets that he's got available to back the company to do more and bigger things. I have to applaud that. It's good thinking, it's advancing in Cuba, it's advancing in Australia. And what legacy do you hope that the company carries on? Um, Looking after their employees, looking after their customers, looking after their suppliers. And it's always been a family company, and that's been a very strong point. Andrew and Nicola Forrest have vowed to expand Akubra's operations, pointing to their 2020 purchase of the Australian boot label RM Williams, which has seen an increase to that brand's workforce of more than 500 people. The Forests announced they had separated this year but continue to invest together through Tatarang. Tina Quinn with that report on the Akubra hats. You can read more about the Akubra sale at abc.net.au and ABC Rural Facebook page as well. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.